Will you pray with me? God, in these tumultuous times, may the words I speak and all of our meditations be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock, our redeemer, the one who sets us free to live in new ways. Amen. In my mind, my parents had saved for ages in order that I might be able to take the annual school trip to Washington, D.C. I was one of only two seventh graders who had been allowed to go, and I was giddy. It meant a plane ride, my very first, and three whole days visiting all the monuments and government buildings. It also meant, according to my mother, that it was time for a new outfit or two. Then again, she thought just about everything was an opportunity for new clothes. My mother, the once upon a time cheerleader, could never understand the way that I dressed, and she was continuously on the lookout for ways to rid me of what I had come to think of as my uniform. Nondescript, off-brand jeans, and plain color baggy t-shirts without any graphics or logos. I'm not sure I understood it really, that uniform, until it came time to go jean shopping for this particular trip. Sitting in the third dressing room of the day, I had refused all the jeans at the other places as too expensive. My mother, exasperated and rightly so, held up the last pair that I had tried on, Z Cavaricis, which were the hot brand of the day, and implored me, don't you want these jeans? And the words flowed up just as quickly as the tears flowed down. Before I had time to catch them, much less analyze them, they were out. Of course I do, I sobbed. I had just spent the better part of a day dragging us all over town to try on different iterations of these same jeans, so this was news to me. Why, then, was all my mother could say. Because $20 is too much to spend on jeans that I'm going to outgrow. And if I get these, Emily will be the only one without them. That part wasn't news to me. Emily was the scholarship girl on the trip, which wasn't supposed to be public knowledge, of course, but everyone knew. And I also happened to know that her parents regularly showed up at the food shelf, so name brand jeans were out of their budget. She stuck, as I did, to a very simple wardrobe that was, inconspicuously, we hoped, free of graphics or even off-brand logos that would draw attention to themselves, and therefore to us. It was the 90s, so it worked pretty well. It was a good strategy, and I had never once been teased or bullied. But I was also a bit addicted, I think, to my self-righteousness. I had always proclaimed my disdain for all things branded or moneyed. I didn't need them, and Jesus certainly wouldn't have approved of me spending very much time on what I looked like, or very much money on how I dressed. At least not when there were hungry people in the world, or so I reasoned to myself. All of these things I knew, but what I didn't know until that moment in the dressing room was how badly I had wanted to wear the same things as everyone else. How much time I spent actively not caring. Just how hard it was to do the right thing. We didn't get the jeans. And I don't remember my mother ever commenting on my clothing again.
Now, this might seem like an odd place to start a sermon about Jesus and our relationship with him and the culture around us, particularly in 2020, when the discussions around immigration, abortion rights, civil rights, voting rights even, have reached a fever pitch. But I started here with this story because I don't want us to lose sight in these discussions of the fact that it's hard to be in the world, even just to be in the world, even during the best of times. It is hard to make the decisions about how we spend our energy and how we spend our time. The culture wars, just like our relationship with and our understanding of Jesus, cannot be divorced from these daily decisions that each of us make. Where each of us put our stake in the ground to say, here I stand and I can do no other. Now, there are two primary things at issue here that we're going to be thinking about today. The first is one's understanding of American culture and the values that we hold dear. And the second is the way one understands the life of Jesus and the life of a Christian to interact with the world around them. Now, the Reverend Adam Hamilton, on whose 2008 sermon series we are sort of patterning our own, started his own sermon on Christ and the Culture Wars with Pat Buchanan's 1992 Republican National Convention speech, the one where he declared that there was a culture war, a war for the soul of America that was as critical to the kind of nation we will one day be as was the Cold War itself. Now, tracing the past 60 years of history, Hamilton goes with a pendulum theory of culture and concludes that the conservatism of the 80s and 90s were a reaction to the turbulence of the 60s and 70s. He pinpoints the 1979 Roe v. Wade decision as a flashpoint in the creation of the culture, culture wars. And after the upheaval of the civil rights and women's liberation movements, along with the prolonged war in Vietnam, the decision that a woman had an unrestricted right to abortion until the second trimester was the tipping point for conservatives who felt the ground shifting too quickly under their feet. This was his thesis. But what Hamilton is citing is actually, I believe, the more conservative, for lack of a better word, understanding of American history. It is what is known sometimes as the de Tocqueville approach to understanding our politics and political system. Under this theory, and here, please excuse me, I am giving truly broad strokes that would not hold up in a political theory paper. <laughs> but what drives us in this theory is our understanding of American moral exceptionalism. This is in fact summed up nicely in a Newt Gingrich quote from his book, To Renew America. From the arrival of English-speaking colonists in 1607 until 1965, Gingrich wrote, there was one continuous civilization built around commonly accepted legal and cultural principles. As scholar Andrew Hartman writes in his book on the culture wars, for conservatives like Gingrich, the America they loved was in distress and returning to the values in that, that they knew animated the nation in the 50s was the only way to save it. But this moralism-based understanding is actually not entirely without its merits. As Hartman writes, the post-World War II Cold War years of the 50s actually did create a type of middle-class cultural uniformity that stretched across social and racial divisions in a way that was heretofore unheard of in the United States. 
In this timeline, there was widespread adherence to the middle class values of hard work, personal responsibility, individual merit, and delayed gratification and social mobility. And it was indeed the Roe versus Wade decision that led to the formation and organizational power of the conservative evangelical political action campaigns that we now think of as the religious right. Organizations such as Falwell's Moral Majority and Robertson's Christian Coalition. And it was certainly these coalitions that allowed the more political, judgment-oriented evangelical movement to overtake the racially integrated personal sin and sanctification evangelism of the 50s and 60s. In other words, to allow Franklin's There's a Speck in Your Eye, Graham, to push out his father, Billy, who was always of the more There's a Log in My Eye, Christian variety. But perhaps herein lies a large part of our cultural problem. What is known colloquially as the left usually has a completely different understanding of history. Rather than understanding America as being unified and then fractured, the left understands America to have always been built upon fracture. Rather than understanding history as the progress of American moral exceptionalism, this viewpoint understands history in terms of the battles between powerful majorities and underserved minorities. Rich and poor, white and black, men and women, religious and atheist, straight and queer. This understanding sees the 60s as nothing more than another period in the long list of times when American society began to recognize the fractured grounds upon which it was formed. Slavery, prohibition, the Great Depression, suffrage, all of these were periods where America was forced to reckon with its understanding of itself. This is essential to understand because it means that even when we agree that there is a type of cultural war going on, we do not agree on the terms. Is it a recent battle or one that was built into our foundation? Is it a battle for personal responsibility or against structural sin? For morality or against oppression? To preserve what is good or to create something better? course, it is both. It must always be both. The American political system has always been fractured, but we have also always held ideals that ask us to build something otherwise. In his book on the topic, James Davison Hunter writes that what emerged from the post-war period was a secularism that changed one thing in particular, the symbols of moral discourse. Secularism changed the organizing principle of American pluralism. The major rift is no longer born out of theological and doctrinal disagreements, as between Protestants and Catholics and the Jewish, Jewish people. Rather, the rift emerges out of a more fundamental disagreement over the sources of moral truth. The rift emerges out of a more fundamental disagreement over the sources of moral truth. The system has always been fractured, but until recently we often called upon the same moral imagery to talk across those fissures. The language of our debates changed, and now we talk past each other. From the standpoint of a particular issue, think about the free love movement in its incarnation in the 1960s. 
it had much to teach us about bodies as God-given vehicles for joy. But so too did institutions of committed, loving relationships have much to teach us about the sanctity and worth of those same bodies and the conditions that were necessary for their flourishing. The language, however, of bodies as sacred was intentionally absent from the free love movement. And here, I hope you see echoes of what we were thinking about last week when we discussed how what is known as more conservative or evangelical churches have emphasized the personal relationship with Jesus and personal salvation, you should not sin, to the detriment of understanding Jesus' more cutting critiques of structural sin. This structure is oppressive to women, for example. More liberal or progressive churches have emphasized, however, social sin without having an understanding of God and the relationship with God to hold them when the world and the work is too hard. Whether you see Jesus as critiquing society or sinners has a lot to say about where, or even whether, you'll end up in church. In 1951, H. Richard Niebuhr published his seminal work, Christ and Culture, outlining the ways Christians have traditionally understood their relationship to Christ and the ways it influences their relationship to the world around them. The first way is though, are those who understand Christ as being against the culture around them. These have been folks like the Amish, or the monks, or the desert ascetics, who view the culture around them as requiring too much compromise, and they withdraw from the world around them in order to live a holy, obedient life. Now, there is beauty in this and simplicity, but as the Reverend Hamilton concludes, Jesus himself did not withdraw from the world around him. He engaged it everywhere he went. So we move to the second understanding who are those who understand Christ as being present in the culture around them. And every church has this tendency to some extent, to see one's own beliefs as those of Christ himself, rather than shaped by the world around them. For more conservative churches, this perhaps looks like understanding one's own moral dictums about the role of women, for example, or skin color or sexuality as ordained by God rather than culture. For more social gospel churches, I prefer to use Niebuhr's own words about the ways we elevate our own understandings. And he says that we tend to preach a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brought men without sin into kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Which means, and I hope I've mostly brought you along here, that we are back to where we started. A teenage girl struggling to figure out what to wear. No? Okay, let me put it this way. To conform to the culture would be to wear the brand names without regret. Without thought to the lives that it impacts. Without an understanding of my own complicity in the structures of systemic violence. To withdraw from the world with its fabric sweatshops, brand name labels, and impossible ideals for women would be as well almost impossible. To place my own moral purity at a premium, I would need to spin my own thread, to make my own fabric, to sew my own clothes without even the machinery that uses fuel that pollutes the earth. That is 
a bit of a limiting choice, to say the least, and one that Jesus did not himself make, because it would have taken his time away from the struggling, the oppressed, and the poor. So withdrawal is out, complete compromise is out. The only option then, as I understand it, for those of us gathered here today in this type of worship is to understand our relationship with Jesus as helping us transform the culture around us. This Niebuhr calls Christ above culture or the ethics and ideals of Jesus calling us into our own very best selves, transforming, redeeming the world around us as we do. And here, here we see where de Tocquevillian idealism can meet fractured reality. In truth, and the building of a new reality, not once, but again and again and again, just as Jesus sought to do. Friends, he preached prophetically, judgmentally, even harshly against the abuses of his time. He overturned tables in the temple and railed against the hypocrites who wore their designer labels and preached holiness, who had no scraps for the poor in the streets or kindness for the stranger. When it came to adultery, even, he proclaimed clearly that we are to rip out our own eye rather than commit such a sin. But when it came to the person in front of him, his ethic of interpretation was always love, always mercy. Forgive them, God, they know not what they do, he pleaded for the ones nailing his hands to the cross. To the woman who had been caught in adultery, he whispered, neither do I condemn you. But also to the scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites who brought the woman to him, hoping to trap him and her, he did not condemn them either. He only pointed out that their focus, our focus, should never be on the faults of another before the faults of our own. Here, then, is perhaps where we begin to find our answer on how to engage our faith and our political life. Perhaps it's a bit like the spiritual equivalent of think globally and act locally. We must think prophetically and act personally listening more than we speak, and loving above all else. In 2020, perhaps we would be wise to begin with lament rather than condemnation, with listening, real listening instead of blame, and hope rather than answers. As Matthew Potts wrote in a recent article in the Harvard Divinity Review, we tend, I think, to associate prophecy with prediction, with the articulation of a world restored. But to lament the world, to declare that it should be other than it is, that is already an act of prophecy. Even if we have no words yet to describe how things might change, to declare it should not be thus is to imply it should be otherwise, and so already to embark upon a work of prophetic imagining. To begin with, lament is in, in itself a political act revolutionary even, and it is one with which we can all actually agree. And for that, thanks be to God for giving us a vision that moves us towards something else.